the pastor tries to get, as has been said up here before, titles out of us kind of ahead of time. So I felt the crunch just to kind of give something. Uh, so I gave this title, The Harmony of God. It relates to what we're talking about, but I think it doesn't communicate exactly what this paper is going to be about here today. What, as I heard the responses from people, they thought the Godhead, right? How is the Godhead interacting together? Well, today's paper is going to be more than just how the Godhead is interacting together. Today is going to be about how you are interacting with the Godhead as well. And it's been very interesting listening to some of the papers and presentations here today because it fits <laughs> right in line with that, right? And it's set the foundation for what we're going to talk about today, how you as grace believers can be in harmony with God. I love Steve's paper because it talked about whose righteousness, right? It's God's righteousness. And as you are walking and living out in your position, taking those step, steps in the walkabout as Chris talked about in his paper, then you are going to be actualizing this harmony together with the Godhead and with God. And it's been well stated here also today and, and on other days that we have a position in Christ that connects us with the God of the universe. I want you to take a moment and appreciate the fact that God, the God that created all things, that created things that are in harmony with one another, gave us the potential to be in harmony with him through our position in Christ. And what a blessed thing that is. I don't know about you, but I look at myself often. And as I was uh, listening to Dan's message here last, it hit me like a ton of bricks, right? I am nowhere near worthy of what God has bestowed on me, right? I am not the greatest husband all the time. I am not the greatest father all the time. I am not the greatest teacher all the time. But in Christ, as again Steve pointed out, the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus is ascribed to even me, right? And so I can, too, participate like the rest of you in the harmony that we have with God. And so as we look at it, I got away from my notes there. <laughs> what this is going to revolve around and what this stemmed from is Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19, where it talks about singing to yourself in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, I don't want this to turn into a bashing uh, session about praise and worship music and those kind of things, because they all have their place, right? But what I want to develop today and, and hopefully uh, ingrain in everyone here is that any song that you sing that comes outwardly should come after you've arranged yourself in the right place inwardly. When you're in the right spiritual condition and you're in harmony with the song of God that's already been going on since, since creation began, your song is going to be beautiful, right? Your song is going to be in alignment with God. And it doesn't even have to be that which comes out of your mouth. It's that which is always going on inside of you. Uh, and so you guys have turned there. Let's go ahead and read Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19. Now you look at those uh, pages there that you have today and uh, Andrew's been giving me a hard time and Steve since probably last year or the year before that. 
they say my notes are full of footnotes <laughs> and it allows my, my pages to be uh, longer than what they might be. I would retort and say that if I wrote out my whole paper like mo most people do here, then it would be much longer. But nevertheless, I made a shorter paper for everyone today just for the sake of Steve and Andrew. Um, but Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19, what does it say there? Now, we're going to go back into the context in the course of this paper because there are some important things that you need to note before you get to verse 19. But let's just read it here right now. It says, uh, speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now, if we were looking in English, that's an incomplete sentence, right? <laughs> There's some things that came before that that caused him to say what he said in verse 19. And those are the things that we're going to look at today. How does one come to be in a place spiritually where he is singing to himself in songs and hymns and spiritual songs? So as you look out into the world system, the world uses music, right? And the world uses music in very uh, manipulative ways a lot of times. If you look at your commercials, they always have music to kind of go along with those commercials. If you watch movies, there's always music accompanying those, those movies. Uh, if you look into the world, there are different genres of music. There's different styles of music. There's instrumental type songs. There's musicals, which I personally, on a side note, despise. Right? <laughs> I can't stand to be watching a movie and then someone just bursts randomly into a song <laughs> to elaborate on whatever activity is going on there. I, I, not for me. The only one I liked uh, over the course of time is Little Shop of Horrors, maybe. <laughs> Some of you guys have seen that. Um, but musicals are another style of song. There are a couple places that I went online just to see what the world thinks about songs and about music. Uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica talks about the effect on emotions. It says throughout history, music has been a very important adjunct to ritual and drama and has been credited with the capacity to reflect and influence human emotion. You see that human emotion. David played music in the Old Testament for Saul. Why? To calm his emotions as those demons were tormenting him. I want to submit to you as we get into it today that your song that's going on inside of you shouldn't have to do with emotion. Right. We're going to see that your spiritual condition has to get in a place first to where you're settled enough for that spiritual song to be playing within you. And we're going to look at that a little bit further. So Encyclopedia Britannica also talks about the music is driving behavior. It's the implications of uses of music and psychotherapy geriatrics and advertising testifying to the faith and its power to affect human behavior. You see that music for man in the world system is supposed to drive your emotions. It's supposed to drive your behavior. You ever seen uh, people that are angry and they have certain songs for when they're angry <laughs> or people that are sad, they have certain songs to bring their mood up when they're sad, this is how the world uses music. And maybe, hey, maybe not just the world, maybe us too as believers sometimes. Another website says it serves to govern the harmony between human beings. It communicates emotion. 
historically used in conflict mitigation. It reveals personality. It promotes, promotes happiness and creativity. It is therapeutic, used for symptoms of Alzheimer's and, and Parkinson's patients. It's used for stroke patients to improve their mute, mood. You see the effect that music can have on people? I want to drive home today that our position in Christ and our relationship with Christ should have the same impact on you and I. And from the outflow of that, you're going to have a song in your heart. And we'll, we'll look at that a little bit later. Uh, songs in Scripture. In the Old Testament, and we're going to look at the difference between songs in the Old Testament as opposed to what we see over there in Ephesians. But in the Old Testament, there were notable songs that had uh, different emotional outpourings of them. And so we look at the song of Moses and of, of Miriam in a similar context there in Exodus. And they were singing on the other side of seeing what God had done in rescuing them from Egypt. Right. And they're looking at the greatness of God as he has delivered them right out of the very hands of the Egyptians. And what is it? It's a, a very emotional response to the greatness of God. And there was nothing wrong with it. Right. Absolutely correct. But again, I want to contrast that with the the difference that you and I can have. We see the music of David. He was a harp player. Right. And he sings and, and writes many psalms concerning the greatness of God. We see different types of songs in scripture. We see songs and hymns and uh, psalms. And these are all stated in the Old and the New Testament as well. And then we see that songs praise the character of God. It is an appreciation for his power. It is sometimes an appeal to God. And music is sometimes used as therapy, as we see with uh, Paul or excuse me, with Saul and uh, David's writing to him. Now, in the New Testament, it's a little bit different. We see the song is of a believer that is spirit filled. Right. When we go over to Ephesians and we're going to point this out, there's some participles that you should zoom in on and, and pay close attention to, because these participles all show the action and activity of one that is already spiritual. And as that person is spiritual, the outflow of that is going to be those songs. And then, interestingly enough, you see the connection of what uh, Brother Dan was talking about here today. Right. This relationship with the husband and wife as they're able to live together because they're both spiritual and in the proper place and condition spiritually. We see that disciples did indeed sing songs during Christ's earthly ministry, and we won't. Uh, touch on that too, too uh, thoroughly. Uh, but we see songs are also noted as sung by the spiritual believer. And again, they're songs, hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs. Now, the character of these songs are an appreciation for the character of God and the alignment of the believer with God. And so why do you ask that I title this the harmony of God? It is because the Godhead, as was pointed out to me, by Steve, uh, as he anticipated what this paper was going to be about. They are in harmony, right? They're in perfect harmony. There is a, a song, if you will, that's been going together with them throughout eternity. They have transferred this into their creation. I like the song for, from Steve Green. Some of you guys might have heard him. He's, he's kind of older, right, in the 80s and 90s. But he sung a song talking about praising God. And it goes, 
praise you, O Lord, I will praise you. My voice will join the chorus that all creation sings. Praise you, O Lord, I will praise you, my master, my redeemer, my savior and king. Now, the king part you could probably leave out as we've established well, but it communicates that creation, the very creation itself knows its creator, right? And is in harmony with his creator. Now, the question will be for you and I, are we going to be in harmony with our creator? And that's the purpose of this paper today. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for this day, uh, grateful for the opportunities that you provided to us by grace. And I am uh, personally grateful that your grace is sufficient in all things. Uh, even in spite of our failures and shortcomings, you're always and your grace is always sufficient for us. And so we pray that as we study uh, through this uh, uh, topic and subject, that we would be able to have a true appreciation for those things that have been provided to us and to be able to live in light of them. We're so grateful for this time together that you've provided, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Where, what time am I supposed to go to? Don't let me lose track here. 11? 11. Okay. All right. And so our first point we want to look at here today is the definition of songs in Scripture. And this is just going to kind of set the foundation for the different songs that we see uh, in different parts of Scripture. And so back in the Old Testament, the main uh, word that's used to translate songs is shir. Uh, and it's comparable as you look in the Septuagint to the uh, Greek word ado, which you'll see for song in the New Testament. And we'll talk about that one in a bit. Uh, uh, and that's really to sing. It's the verbal form of it. The noun form is uh, shira. And this is a singular or collective melody that is verbalized in praise, victory or other forms of expression. We see the uh, noun also zamir, which is a melody of praise usually reserved for the divine. And then we see uh, mizmor, which is the word for psalm. And so you see this one all throughout the book of Psalms uh, utilized there to express uh, a poetic uh, type of, of lip, uh, rhythmic uh, 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 song, <laughs> basically. Uh, and then the New Testament words that we see, as mentioned before there, uh, ado, uh, and this is to sing, produce musical sound or notes with the voice. Uh, uh, psalmos, that's direct carryover to our word for psalms. It's a striking, twanging, specifically a striking of the chords, of a musical instrument, hence a pious uh, son, a psalm on who uh, it is in the heart to sing and recite of the sort. Uh, humnas is, carries over to our word for him in the English. And this is a sacred song, a song of praise to God, especially used to express thanksgiving. And lastly, our word for Ode, which is just a form of the first word we saw. And this is a particular pat, uh, pattern, not patter but pattern uh, with verbal content. And as you uh, look at these, you're going to see them all throughout the Old and, and New Testament. And we'll, we'll touch on some of them, but our focus, of course, will be on those words that you find in the New Testament. Now, the songs of old. We talked uh, a bit there before about the song of Moses. And I have forgotten my, <laughs> my, new te my Old Testament. Does anyone have a, a uh, Bible with an Old Testament there? So and in this song, 
the song of Moses. Thank you, Brother John. Be working with a Bible here, unfamiliar to me. Well, these words are very large. <laughs> Thanks for that uh, heads up there, Steve. And so as we look at this song of Moses, again, it's coming on the other side of the deliverance of Israel out from the hand of Egypt. Now, what I want you to note about these Old Testament uh, songs, it, it is amazing to see the appreciation that they have for God and being able to point out the very specifics about his power and how he was very influential in getting them to the place that they get. And you see this in every last one of these songs. And yet. Right on the other side of it, you see it again and again. What happens? They start to act up <laughs> every single time. You point out here how great God was. He delivered us out of the hands of, of Pharaoh. He drowned their army. And guess what? Okay, a couple days later, <laughs> who remembers that? That was days ago, right? And let's act up again. And you see this on, on a couple of accounts, but uh, we won't read through this whole thing, but... Uh, let's just uh, catch the tenor of it. And, and uh, chapter 15 and verse one, it says, then sang Moses and the children of Israel, this song unto the Lord and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God. I will prepare him a habitation my father's, uh, my father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank, in, uh, sank into the bottom as stone. Thy right hand, here talking about his strength, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed uh, in pieces the enemy and in the greatness of thine excellency thou hast overthrown them that rose up against thee thou sendest forth thy wrath which consumed them as stubble and with the blast of thy nostrils the waters were gathered together the flood stood upright as a heap and the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My lust shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Thou didst blow with, the, with thy wind. The sea covered them. They sank as lead into the mighty waters. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders, Thou stretchest out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in, the strength of the, uh, in thy strength unto the, thy holy habitation. The people shall hear and be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold of the inhabitants of Palestina. Then the dukes of Edom shall be amazed. The mighty men of Moab trembling shall take hold upon them. All the habitation of Canaan shall melt away. Fear and dread shall fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm, they shall be as still as stone. Till thy people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over, which thou hast purchased. 
Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for, they, uh, for thee to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horse of Pharaoh went in with his chariots and with his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought again the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. And Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after uh, with her, uh, with, excuse me, timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing ye to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider have over, have he, hath he overthrown in the sea. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And, uh, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. <laughs> so here you have it. Moses has been testifying to the greatness of God and his delivery in great detail, mind you, of them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And what happens? They get on the other side. They're in the desert. <laughs> they have no water. And what happens? What happens with Israel always? They start to murmur and complain. Look in verse 24. And they laid it up till the morning as Moses bade, and it did not hurt. I skipped a verse. Verse 23. And he said, um, no, I went forward too far, I think. Knocked a page over. (laughs) Sorry about that. Verse 23, it says, and uh, when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name, uh, it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried out unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, uh, which when he did cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. Uh, There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and uh, there he proved them. Uh, And so, again, we won't go too far into that, but you see, this is a repeated theme throughout the Old Testament, right? God shows them miracles. God shows them his greatness. And what do they do? They complain <laughs> and they murmur. Now, don't think them to be much different than us as grace believers, right? Because you and I, we've been given everything, right? As Chris pointed out in his paper, we, we have it all. <laughs> we have no shortness in being able to live out godliness in human flesh. And oftentimes, what do we do? We're unthankful, <laughs> right? We don't appreciate the situations that God has us in. And we say, boy, I want no parts of this. Right. I did a paper. I think it was last year. I can't remember. I've done so many of them. But uh, we, we were talking about discipline and child training. Right. And how God is using child training in the life of the believer to get him from here where he's born to a place where God wants him to be, where he's mature and walking the way that he needs to. And there's an appreciation that we can have for all of the individual situations that God brings in our life that allows us to get there. Right. And those things are not always good. (laughs) If you think about it, uh, most of them are going to be bad. (laughs) And a lot of it's going to be bad because of decisions that we make. And yet God is using all of these things to grow us to where he wants us to be. And what can our attitude be for that? It can be an attitude of thanksgiving. We're going to see over in Ephesians chapter uh, five where we were that there's two mentions of thanksgiving in that context 
that are essential to you being able to walk out uh, an attitude that's spiritual. And we'll get to that when we when we get there. Now, thinking back to this again, uh, this song and just an overview of it, it is saying in commemoration of God's delivery of the sons of Israel out of the hand of the Egyptians. It is saying by Moses and in agreement with the sons of Israel. And the content is attributing the victory over their enemy to God and commending his power and the deliverance from their enemy. It is uh, praising his distinctiveness as God. You see that over and over again throughout that context. Who is like you? Right. There is none like you. Uh, and even these guys that uh, Egypt would have made up, there is there is none like him. And the activity uh, with this song, it is accompanied with the dancing of Miriam that we see in verse 20. But again, immediately following, it is accompanied by murmuring <laughs> and complaining from Israel. And so you see the songs there, even though they're good, they don't have the effect that they need to have in keeping these people uh, wondering on the, the sight of God and, and what he did. I always like to call it uh, with Egypt a billboard to the greatness of God. This should have been something that they always looked back to and said, whatever was going on, okay, we can't find water. God brought us out of Egypt, right? Our backs were against the wall. We had no place to go and he opened up the sea. Is there anything that's impossible for God? If God can open the sea, don't you think he can provide you water in the desert? If God can open the sea, don't you think that he can provide food for you? These things should have been billboards for them. We also see in the Old Testament the song of Deborah. And I'm not going to read through that one as much as, as we'll, we'll get carried away here if we uh, land on all of these. But the song of Deborah, and just looking at an overview, you can go to uh, Judges chapter 5 on your own time and read through that one. But the overview of the song is it sang in celebration of God's deliverance of Israel out of the hands of the Canaanites. And it is sang by Deborah as well as uh, Barak. And it, the content of this song is blessing the Lord for what he has done and recounting the mighty acts of the Lord in his deliverance. Uh, we could also go over and look at the harmony of David and looking at these songs that he has. Uh, we know David was a player of the harp and that he was uh, able to do this for Saul in order to calm his moods. Uh, now, I will point out on the other side of that, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. I don't know why I'm maybe just a little sadistic, but <laughs> David's playing the harp for Saul and Saul's being contented for a while. And then his spirit stirs up in him. And what does he do? He, he picks up the javelin and hurls it at David. Now, I'm not laughing at that part. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing at what he said after uh, or the commentary that was said after that he sought to pin David to the wall with this javelin. And here you think, boy, this guy is just psychotic, right? <laughs> what is wrong with this guy? Someone's just playing music for you and you just hurl it at him? Maybe it was that bad. I don't know. <laughs> but we see uh, this had an effect on, on Saul at times, but at times it wasn't enough, right? It wasn't enough to calm his moods. We see David dancing to music as the ark was brought into Jerusalem in celebration. And we could go over to 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 14, but again, uh, that's just there for your your own time to go to. Uh, now, interestingly enough, on that occasion, his wife, uh, uh, Michael, is looking down at him and she's embarrassed by his behavior. Right. As he's dancing, as I'm sure most wives would. If my wife saw me dancing, she would say, stop that. <laughs> Not in public. Right. Uh, and so you see this for David as well. 
Well, I have no rhythm. Maybe maybe David had better rhythm than I do. <laughs> we see the Psalms of David and, and there's a few Psalms, really a lot of Psalms that uh, point to this uh, poetic style uh, and, and musical. Um, uh, a lot of them are accompanied by music. But over in Psalm 95, verse two, we see that David exhorts uh, to be thankful in the presence of the Lord and to sing unto him with Psalms. And David uh, calls God's statutes his psalms over in uh, Psalm 119 and verse 54. I didn't want to spend a lot of time there in the Old Testament because as you're going to see as we get to our main point that there is a distinct difference between what they sung in the Old Testament and what is telling us uh, and the attitude that we're going to talk about here in Ephesians chapter 5, right? Their songs were in response to something that God had done, and it had nothing to do with what was going on on the inside of them. As has been well pointed out, they did not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So they didn't, never had an ability fully to have a true appreciation for God. As you see, their actions on the other side of expressing his greatness are always failures, right? They fall flat on their face. And you and I, this does not have to be the case. Now, it can be, right? It can be. We're going to choose to live in light of the grace that we've been provided. Old or new refrigerator. <laughs> Our people here know that and are probably getting tired of that. Maybe I'll need to make up a new analogy. Uh, or we can live in that old nature, right? Old refrigerator. <laughs> Do we still have that? What happened to that refrigerator? <laughs> we got rid of it. Okay. Well, you didn't get rid of yours. It's still there. <laughs> The songs of the future. There are going to be songs that are sung out into the future, and we see this in heaven in the book of Revelation. Uh, and I've tried to comply here, but I'm going to have to be a little disobedient. It's getting hot up here. <laughs> People, this, the jacket has to go. Uh, the tie is next, as Brother Dennis said on, on Friday. Um, but Revelation chapter 15 and verse 3, we see the song of Moses as sung in heaven. Now, is this the same exact song that was sung back in the Old Testament? That I don't know. I'm not in heaven seeing this as, uh, as John was. But we see this song sung in heaven. Very interesting. And this is Revelation chapter 15 and verse 3. And pick it up in verse 1. And he says there, and I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seeing or, uh, seven angels having seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and, uh, and them that had gotten victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass having harps. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways, thou King of the saints, who shall not, who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name, for thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. And after that, I looked and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven is open. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed uh, in pure and white linen and having their breasts girded with go golden girdles. And so in this song, a very interesting one here, 
Oops, you see what's going on in heaven or get a little insight into what's going on in heaven. And so you see the tribulation saints that are singing here, as we see in verse two. Uh, we can go over to a couple of verses. Again, I don't want to get bogged down in this. Some of these you guys I have to just go back and look at on your own time. But uh, some of the citation of these saints, uh, you see, these are one that had, ones that had conquered the beast. This word for conquer is very interesting. I don't see anyone wearing Nikes in here, but it comes from our word for Nike, which means I conquer or, or uh, to conquer. And so uh, these had gotten victory over the beast and out of his image and out of his mark and out from the number of his name. I just want to look at a couple of verses that um, uh, correlate with these three things they had gotten the victory over that included the beast. Um, but over in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 14, we see this uh, word here for image. And the image comes from our word for icon. <laughs> and interestingly enough, this word is used of men sometimes as we look at these Hollywood types or these uh, entertainers, these basketball players. And people like to put these people way up on a, a pedestal, right, that they're icons to be looked at or, or to be uh, looked at above the rest of the people. But this word uh, simply has the idea of, of a replica, almost the idea of that. But pick it up in verse 14. It says, or, or go back just a little bit into verse uh, 3, or excuse me, verse 10. It says, He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exercises all the authority, not power there, but authority of the first beast before him, and causes the earth that, uh, and them which dwelleth therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire to come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And deceiveth them that dwelleth upon the earth. And by the means of the, the, those miracles, which uh, he had uh, power to do in the sight of the beast, saying uh, to them that dwelleth upon the earth, that they should make an image to the beast, which hath his wound uh, by a sword uh, and, and did live. And so you see this beast uh, making an image of himself. Right. There's another uh, replica of some kind of himself. And he's telling them, hey, worship, worship this. And so we see this in this context. Uh, the mark we see over in uh, verse 16, if we continue on. Uh, but verse 15, it says, and he hath power uh, to give unto them the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. So here's what you see where a lot of these tribulation saints end up in heaven. Why? Because they will not worship uh, this beast. Now, it's interesting, the conversation that we had, uh, or I think it was me and Gabe had last night, is interesting. Uh, where does the line get drawn with our uh, obedience to authority and what they're going too far and stepping into God's lane. This is an, a very obvious one that you'll see during the tribulation period. And as we're reading through this now, it's pretty obvious, right? What you shouldn't shouldn't be doing. But how does that creep into to how we're living now? And where does that line get drawn? I don't know. Maybe I'm meddling too much. <laughs> but continue on in verse 16. It says, and he causes all both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond to receive a mark in their right hand 
and in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save they had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And so here you see uh, that idea of the number of his name. Uh, you see this mark of the beast. You see the image of the beast. And guess what? Though it looked like some of these people on earth, because they did not obey that edict, lost. Guess what? In the end, they got the victory over the beast and over all of these things that he had caused to happen on the earth. And so what did they do in response to that? They sing of the greatness of God who has allowed them to have this victory over the beast. Now, the posture of these saints is we're going back to to uh, chapter 15 and verse three. It shows that they are standing on the sea of glass and they are having harps from God. And so these this idea of the harp is our word for kitharos. Uh, and we see it a couple different places listed there. But interestingly enough, it's saying these harps are from God or belonging to God, however you want to translate that. So the origins of the harps are from the source of God and thus are uh, incomparable to anything we know as instruments of sound on this earth. So uh, John uses a lot of words that are similar, right? He's seeing things way out in the future that he has no frame of reference for what he's seeing. So he's using words that we have that can kind of compare to things that we're seeing. But these are not necessarily that they're sitting up there just plucking, <laughs> plucking the lyre. There's something that they were playing that was making uh, musical sound uh, in this context. And so uh, the song of the saints, they are singing. Interestingly enough, and going back to uh, chapter 15 and verse three, uh, he uses a, a device here called a historical present where he's he's saying this as if it's happening right now, even though he's writing at a different time than when it actually happened. And so it says they are singing. I, I watch this when I, I watch a lot of uh, uh, police shows. I, I blame my mother. <laughs> See. She liked to watch all of these crime shows when we were growing up. So I like to watch one called The First 48. <laughs> and it's of these uh, people that commit murders and they're trying to solve it within the first 48 hours so that the uh, trail of whatever they've done doesn't go cold. Uh, but it's interesting as they bring these witnesses in a lot of times, they use this device where they're describing the events that have happened as if they're happening right now. Right. But we know that it's actually in the past that these events, events occurred. And this is what he's doing here. And so he says, not they sing, they are singing. It's like it's going on right now as he's writing. And song number one is the song of Moses. And so what's comparable about what we heard from the song of Moses to what they're singing in heaven? I'll give you one word, victory, <laughs> right? God delivered Israel out of the hand of the Egyptians God is delivering these tribulation saints out of the hand of the beast. And though it looks like they lost again, they died and they're in heaven. But guess what? They have won. They have gained victory over the beast and of his mark and over the number of his name, uh, as mentioned before. And so we see the servitude of Moses is emphasized. It's interesting. They say uh, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. And so why does it why does he emphasize this? It's because Moses's service to God allowed the nation of Israel to see victory over their enemies. And in a similar way, these that serve God have been delivered from their enemies as well. And the circumstances of Israel being given the victory over their enemies is comparable to the current delivery over the beast. 
The second song that they sing, or maybe it's a stanza of the same song, is the song of the lamb. And so we see the subject is the lamb. And this is indicative of the sacrificial work of Christ and the reality that the work looks backward and forward. Right. They are not right then looking at the fact that Christ has delivered them by his sacrificial work. That was many years prior to this writing. Right. And yet this work is still uh, uh, available for them as well. And the victory of the lamb produces the victory of the saints, eventual victory of the saints over the beast. And so what are the lyrics of this song? It's praise for the works of God. We see in verse three. Uh, and so not just works, but great works. And I like to call it exaggerated works. When you look at this word for mega, I don't know how many people play video games back in the 90s. That was uh, the apex of my childhood. But I played this game called Mega Man. Right. He's more than a man. <laughs> he's not just a man. He's Mega Man. And he had all of these powers that were given through machines that really he didn't have any more power in and of itself. It's because he had these machines on. He's kind of like Iron Man. Uh, but he, he's more than man. And so what I say for this word for mega, specifically in this context, is it's exaggerated, right? And it's not exaggerated in the way that you and I think of exaggeration. We think when someone says that they're doing something, boy, they're sure exaggerating, right? I, I did this and I did that and I did this. Well, he's just exaggerating, right? These exaggerated works of God are not in the sense that they are not what they appear to be, but in the sense that they are as large as any human mind can comprehend and unreal to the human mind. When you and I think about the greatness of God, we think about it in that way, right? Unbelievable, right? The, the greatness of our God. And not only are they mega, they're marvelous. This word for marvelous comes from our word that has the idea of awe-inspiring, right? When people were seeing the miracles that were performed by Christ during his earthly ministry, they were left in awe, right? You have no words. There's, there's nothing you can uh, reference to say how great and awe-inspiring this work is, uh, that was done is. Also in verse three, we see that there is praise for the name and character of God. They say, or, or uh, John says that they say, Lord God Almighty. This comes from a word for Pentacrator, the one having or possessing all strength uh, to be able to accomplish something. Uh, it, righteous and true are his conduct. And so it then looks at his character, right? God's character. Now, it would be interesting. The pastor has talked about if he were. Uh, God before, and I want to put you on blast here. You're a little sadistic sometimes, right? But if he were God, he would be zapping people right and left, right? Doesn't sound very righteous, does it? And over in Second Thessalonians chapter one, we we see that God is going to restore order. It's one of the pastor's favorite contexts because it talks about God uh, taking vengeance on them that know not God, right? I have a little bit more of a softer heart than a pastor does. I don't want to see people just zapped. In. But I do want to see righteousness leveled, right? We don't live in a world where, where righteousness is leveled. And it's very interesting that outside of a lot of our courtrooms, what do they have? They have scales that show that there should be balance between uh, unlawfulness and lawfulness. And yet those scales are not always balanced, right? 
And it's not going to be that way when you're dealing with men who are fallible and all have sin natures that are in charge of meeting out that justice. But guess what? God is just 100 percent of the time. And all of his acts that he does are based on that righteousness and that attribute of righteousness. And not only is he righteous, he's true. Right. Someone talked about truth here in the last couple of days. I can't remember specifically who it was. Maybe it was you, Steve. Was it? Nope. Chris, both of you guys? Okay. Truth. Maybe that's why it's uh, not specific to one of you guys. But truth, right? Seeing things the way they really are. In a world where people are constantly trying to conceal their true intentions, we have a God that stands as true all the time. Completely unconcealed. We have to put on a face a lot of times, right, when we're dealing with people because we don't want people to know who we really are. God never has to do that. He's always reflective of who he truly is, and his his judgments are based on that. And he also is called here the king of the saints, and there's a textual variant there that won't go into. uh, Didn't research it far enough to see which way it should go. Top of page five. Now, our pages might be off because my notes are a little different than yours. You've got the condensed version. <laughs> I've got the souped up version. Uh, is that four for you guys? Okay. Praise for the complete unveiling of God. And so in verse four, we see all fear and glorify him. And the answer is rhetorical. Who should not fear God? Right. And the answer is very clear. Nobody. Right. Everyone should have a healthy respect for who God is. And it's certainly done through his his judgment being seen here. And the character of God is revealed through all of his judgment. Right. We have people again here today uh, that make judgments based on what they think is right. Right. And we've established in our society today through most people that your truth (laughs) is your individual truth. There is no overriding truth. It's what's going on in in this little head of the individual that perceives it. And so how can people make right judgments when we have people having no standard of truth that exists outside of an individual? You've got these kind of people making judgments concerning men that don't believe that there is objective truth. God doesn't do that. Right. God inhabits. He is righteousness and truth. So his judgments are just an outflowing or an outsource of who he is. And so uh, you see this here. Now, we also see a new song is sung in heaven. And this is what I like to call a redemption song. Some of you guys might get that and some of you might not, depending on if you like Bob Marley. (laughs) But this is a song of redemption for the elders in heaven. Go with me over to Revelation chapter five and verse nine. Now, note for you that the book of Revelation is not in sequential order. (laughs) It's kind of all over the place. Um, But you see in heaven, again, these saints singing a new song. In verse 1, it says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and the backside and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. And no man in heaven, 
nor in earth, neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look upon it. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. I've joked before <laughs> the pastor got us these uh, drama Bible books uh, several years ago. Miss Jay's probably the only one that remembers, but he got them for all the members of the church. This is what shows you how small our church was at the time. <laughs> right? But he got everybody these drama books and um, or CDs and you could hear. Uh, little sound effects. And I loved it because it, when, when it talks about Paul getting slapped in, in Acts chapter, uh, in, in the book of Acts, I can't remember the chapter, you could hear the, <laughs> right? well here, you could hear the weeping of a person and it really makes it jump off the, the, the not the page, but the sound for you. Uh, but in verse five, it says, and one of the elders saith unto me, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, lo, in the midst of the throne and four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the, out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne, and when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And has made us uh, unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard a voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000, 10,000, uh, excuse me, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. There was a lot of them, <laughs> to, to say the least. Um, but as you look at this song, uh, we go back to verse nine. What is the antecedent to this day? I believe it's the elders. And they sang a new kind of song, a new and kind song. This word for uh, new song uh, comes from our word uh, kainos. And so it's not new in chronology or new in time. It's new and kind. And the accompanying uh, of the song were harps and odors. So I believe there was a ceremonial uh, uh, component going on here. And we see that the content of this song, it is praise for his worthiness, right? We see that John was weeping because there was no one that was found that was able to open the seals of this book. But we find that there is one that is worthy, and it is Jesus, the Lamb. And he's uh, worthy to receive the book, worthy to open the seals. And then we see uh, that there is, is praise given for his uh, redemption of the saints through his blood and for his transformation of the saints. And finally, joining in on the chorus, as you look at this song, are the angels and the beasts and the elders. And so uh, we see that song. We're going to go ahead and close out there. We'll come back and finish this off and then get into what we really came here for, Ephesians chapter 5 and the song of you and I as grace believers.